Hey everybody, this is Ben Kaznoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Hello, everybody. I'm Olga Sergeyevich, the Head of Investor Relations at Village Global. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Prescott Watson. He is a co-founder of Port Power, a software platform that helps to de-risk commercial fleet's adoption of electric vehicles. Prior to that, he co-founded Red Blue Capital, an early-stage mobility-focused venture capital firm. For much of the last decade, he has been investing across the transportation and energy space in the U.S., Latin America, Israel, and India. In today's conversation, we'll discuss transport electrification as a national development project for the United States and other countries and see what makes the U.S. system unique. We'll also dive into the opportunities of building and investing at the intersection of software, data, and infrastructure. Prescott, let's start with a high-level overview of the national development projects in the United States. What are the most important projects in your view today? Who are the main players involved? And how do value and capital flows look like in the space? Sure. Thanks for having me, Olga. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. So uh, before jumping into the project, I think it's interesting also to reflect on the term national development. I'd say like there, there are three characteristics of what makes something a national development project. The first is that it has to be a big project. Obviously, it has to impact most people. It has to be a pretty different way of doing things, or it has to be a very new type of thing that is being done. And most importantly, it has to be something that doesn't happen organically in the way the system currently works. It has to be something that requires central intervention to get over like market failures or just the fact that individuals tend to do things or companies tend to do things in a certain way given the way a system works. So like like the US interstate system is probably the, the most classic example in the US of like a national development project, a fairly Central, not necessarily centrally planned, but centrally sponsored system that benefits us all, but absent some sort of central impetus, it would have taken a lot longer to come together and it wouldn't have been as sort of clean cut and um, systemically integrated as it, as it is now. But you could also think of like soft issues as national development, a universal K through 12 education, for example, in some ways is national development because you know, before universal education, parents would have kids work. And maybe we could say as a society it would make more sense to invest in human capital development for kids. But if you don't have much money and you're trying to make ends meet, it might make more sense for you individually to have your kid working at your store than going to school, right? So there's sort of an individual versus collective benefit and time scale question that makes universal mandated education like a national development type of project. And even in some ways, you could think of like, uh, I know it's going to be weird because we're talking mostly about electric vehicles and it's kind of funny to tie these two together, but like even school integration is kind of a, was in some ways part of the national development project in the US, like the desegregation of schools. It's not just that we're going to have everyone go to school as a child, but we centrally have like a perspective on what school should be. We have standards on what schooling should entail, and we're going to make sure that that is 
enforce to, to a variety of degrees, right? And enforcement takes a while and it, there's different mechanisms of enforcement, but like with school integration, like the federal government nationalized the Arkansas National Guard and, and sent the military in to make sure that school would be open for both white and black kids, right? So in some ways, what makes it a national development project is it has to be big. It has to be something that steers us in a different direction and frequently has to be something that we might all think is something that's good, but it's not necessarily something we want to do as individuals or as individual companies. And so sometimes you hear, you know, the criticism that let's say in the past, the United States was so good at launching these types of initiatives. And, and some people would say like, we're not good at it anymore. Is, is that how you think about it? Is there like a line you draw? Was there something that fundamentally shifted, which maybe changed that dynamic? Yeah, this is such a big question and, and I'm not the right person, but I'll think of some names as I blab on here. Yeah, look, it seems like it's just really hard for us to get things done uh, compared to 60 years ago. And there's this growing movement called uh, the Abundance Movement. I'm sure we could put like a link in the show notes or something. They call themselves Abundance and they, they talk about it's not big versus small government. It's about effective government versus whatever we have now. And one of the focuses that they have is on trying to tackle manufactured scarcity why is cost of living so high? Well, we can't build houses because people don't want houses built in their backyard, right? Why do we have no doctors? It's because we have these insane residency programs and our medical associations stop foreign trained doctors and, and nurses can't do basic care. It's like this concept of narrow interest capture where a small group of people can stop projects that would help everyone. And, and if you want to read about this, you know, Ezra Klein um, writes a lot about this. Derek Thompson uh, talks about this abundance movement all the time. And and also Misha Chellam are, are good thinkers. But we have a lot of big projects when it comes to transport electrification. Um, and a lot of the a lot of the challenges in this world are the are the same challenges that the abundance movement talks about in almost every aspect of American life that's become expensive. So excited to double click more into um into that one. And uh, one of the key areas you are passionate about is transportation electrification. Why is that? What makes um, this a national development project, and what does this project require to get done? Great. Yeah. So so let's look at. Um electric vehicle infrastructure through this framework of national development. Uh, starting with big, right? Uh, obviously it's big, everyone's gonna be driving an EV or a zero emissions vehicle. Um, every good that's gonna be moved on the, you know, on the roads 20 years from now is gonna be moved by a zero emissions truck. It's a big change. The second point here is that the transition is gonna involve a complete change in how things work, right? And that's something people need to better understand because it actually comes as a surprise to most consumers. Our industry, the electric vehicle industry, has done as much as possible, to their credit, to make going electric not a big deal for consumers, right? The technologies to the point where for the narrow range of use cases that the average American has for their car, which is commuting and maybe taking a road trip once or twice a year, you know, EVs work pretty well. I mean, they essentially can be swapped in one for one. And sure, they cost a little bit more, but they last a lot longer. There's no maintenance. Fuel is much cheaper. It just makes sense to make the switch. The issue comes with commercial users. And commercial fleets are an important part of this transition because, remember, the whole purpose of this transition is pollution and climate change. Commercial fleets are, the where, are where a disproportionate amount of pollution and emissions come from. And for commercial fleets, commercial users, 
Electric vehicles don't work at all like internal combustion engines. They require a completely different approach to operations. And this is kind of mysterious to consumers, and frankly, I think sometimes to regulators as well, because we haven't had to do the complicated task of making a fleet schedule work. To, to make it a little bit more clear, you know, there's this debate among consumers that are thinking of buying an EV. Do I need to have home charging or not? If you have a single family home in a garage, yeah, have home charging because why not have home charging, right? If you live in an apartment, a lot of people have been nervous like, well, can I get by just fast charging here and there or charging in the mall, you know, in my L2 charger, etc.? And it's a healthy debate that's going back and forth. I, obviously, everyone should want home charging. Not everyone can have it. In the realm of commercial fleets, zero debate. Nobody believes in opportunistic charging as the way you're going to keep your fleet up and running. The idea that you take the vehicle to the energy, which is today how everyone fuels. I mean, even in commercial fleets, most drivers are given a fuel card and you go to a gas station like consumers do. That is is completely unworkable. Instead, the paradigm shift that's happening is that Everyone needs to bring the energy to where their vehicles are parked already. So if you're a commercial fleet and you've got a parking lot and you park your vehicles overnight or whenever there's downtime, that is when you want to charge. And the consequence of that is that every commercial fleet and the real estate partners that have the warehouses inside of which they're located is now suddenly tasked with being an energy project developer and suddenly having to build effectively a Tesla supercharger in the backyard of every location you service. Um... And then that brings you to asking the grid for the power to do that. And the fact of the matter is, across the nation, fleets are asking their utilities for upgrades to allow them to charge 30, 50, 100 cars. And the answer they're going to get is, yeah, seven, eight years from now. Um, in the meantime, we'll give you 10% of what you're asking for. And that's where all of these challenges are coming from. And I think that might sound surprising to some consumers or you know investors that have heard from the EV world that, hey, commercial EVs should be electric already. They're already cheaper to operate. In many cases, you know, the industry is correct. The cost of ownership, the total cost of ownership of the of electric, you know, is lower than for diesel and whatnot. And I think it's just going to continue in that trend. That's the good thing. We're working with tailwinds here. But it does mean that fleet customers are going to have to really change their operations. And somebody whether it's the utilities or it's going to be the fleets. And at the end of the day, as we'll talk about in a minute, it's going to be a mix of both of them. Somebody's going to have to make a lot of CapEx expenditure building the charging infrastructure needed to make all this actually work. I mean, you can't get lower cost of ownership if the thing doesn't work, right? And so you're asking fleets with complicated businesses to make tons of operational changes when they buy an EV. And you're also asking fleets and or utilities or some mix of those customers like, hey, also, you're going to have to build a lot of charging infrastructure. That's a tall order for, for anyone, right? So is it going to be the kind of thing that fleets are, that commercial users are going to do just out of the goodness of their own hearts because they have a brand around environmentalism? I mean, maybe a few, but frankly, it's going to require substantial carrots and sticks. And that brings us to point three, which is the importance of central support for this transition. At the end of the day, the energy transition is something powered by new technologies, but that is very much being propelled by hundreds of billions of dollars of explicit subsidies and trillions of dollars of implicit subsidies from the government. And that shouldn't be surprising. I mean, in our current system, right, 
built around petrochemicals. That didn't just come out of nowhere. I mean, obviously, petrochemicals are great, but read Jurgen's books, right? The government sponsored a framework in which the energy system developed in the way it did, right? And so it's just the nature of the beast. Whenever you're tackling transportation, you're in a system that involves a lot of implicit and explicit subsidies. And with EVs, I mean, they're everywhere. A matter of fact, like how much of Tesla's revenues are just state or federal subsidies? I don't know the exact percentage, but it's definitely, you know, more than a, it's, it's a non-negligible part. Let's put it that way. So as consumers, I think that, you know, we get that there are carrots, right? There's federal tax credits, state tax credits for buying electric. What we're not aware of, though, and what we should be more aware of as consumers is that there are enormous sticks coming out that are going to push largely commercial users, push them towards electric in the near future. Starting in 2026, which is, you know, two and a half years from now, basically, if you're a fleet in California and many other states, actually, there are restrictions on your ability to buy diesel vehicles. As soon as two years from now, some percentage, depending on the type of fleet you are, if you're drage, it's much higher. If you're long haul, it's much lower. But some percentage of your vehicles that you're buying have to be electric. And if you don't want to lose business, you're going to have to find a way not just to buy those vehicles, and it can be hard to come by them, but you have to figure out a way to make them work with charging and fitting them into your fleet schedule and having your drivers accept them, et cetera. And if you don't, you're just going to lose out. Like your business is going to start eroding. You're going to be hit with very substantial fines. There are real carrots uh, real sticks coming for especially fleet users. Um, and, and, you know, I, I referenced earlier, like, school integration to make this kind of crazy analogy. I don't think we're going to send the National Guard in, right, to, to, like, shut down fleets that are polluting. But, you know, there's that... Did you ever see this 2010 uh, Super Bowl commercial? I think it was, like, 2011, where Audi ran... It was called the Green... Go to YouTube and search, like, Green Police. We'll include it in the notes. Yeah, um, it's a really funny and well done ad, but it was kind of playing on this rising kind of fear of uh, parentalism in the government around, you know, eco-friendly issues. So there was, you know, the green police was arresting somebody for using an incandescent light bulb. And it culminates in a scene where you've got an eco roadblock where the police were stopping vehicles one by one. And of course, like the Audi uh, the, this clean diesel Audi, TDI clean diesel comes up and the police officer's like, clean diesel, you're good to go, sir. And the hugest irony of all this is, of course, this was like a year or two before the Dieselgate scandal shows that Volkswagen was completely faking its emission numbers. But, but the point is, like, there's this perception that we're going to get to a point where, you know, you have roadblocks. Well, I, I mean, I don't think so. But, you know, California Air Resources Board, or CARB, which is arguably the most important environmental regulator in the world in some ways. CARB is putting on the highways these precise automated emissions testing systems that sniff the air as trucks pass by and can basically look at the truck that passes by if there's a violation in the substances being emitted, um, check the license plate and automatically issue a fine. And so, yeah, I mean, we're getting to the point where we have pretty substantial intervention on the sticks side, not just on the carrot side, um, that is forcing this transition to happen. And downstream of that, commercial users in particular are 
all asking the question, okay, what the heck do I do? How do I make this work? And so for those of us who are not experts um, on on this sector, tell us a little bit more, you know, who are the key players here, right? You referenced um, different types of regulators. So who, you know, who has the priority? Who writes those rules? Is that federal, state level? And and how does it all inter- interact sort of internationally, right? Because we were talking about system-wide issues, um, such as climate change, um, there's obviously national versus international component. Um, so tell us a little bit more about like key types of players in um, in this sector today. So I'm going to oversimplify here and give only one perspective just to make more of a, a point. I mean, it's a much broader cast of characters that matter in this transition. But for the purposes of like this conversation about national development priorities, the most important figure is going to be the electric grid. Um, and there are a lot of things that make up the electric grid. I mean, first of all, there's not one electric grid in the U.S. There's hundreds, and they're all uncoordinated, and they're separate, and they're all regulated by different agencies, surprisingly. Um, but the reason this is important is because ultimately, you know, a big portion of the energy that we use in our society goes to moving things. And for the most part, when we move things today, we're moving it by burning fossil fuels, whether it's you know jet fuel or gas or, or diesel. And if you're going to move to a largely electric-based transportation system, all that energy that's coming, that's uh, coming from being distributed through being burnt in the form of liquid fuels is gonna be shifting to electricity. And what that means is like roughly over the next 10 or 15 years, the electrical system has to double in its capacity. And and I say system because it's what the conclusion I'll get to is it's actually not just the grid. It's going to be like a new way of managing the electrical system. And, you know, that doesn't seem like a big issue because, you know, 15, 20 years, like how many times has our electrical system doubled in capacity, you know, over the past hundred years, It's, it's doubled many times in capacity, but it's not just about 2xing everything. It's that the, the way the grid is going to look and work is, is totally different. Um, and so let's, let's go into why it's different and, and how it should be built and then how, as America, we're going to actually probably end up building it. So the, the reason that this is a big deal, this doubling, is because uh, liquid fuel is like, it's like magic. You have so much energy stored in a small little container. If you want to move the energy, you just pick up the container and you walk around with it. You know, there, you know, back when, in the days when, you know, the, not everyone had broadband. A lot of people said the fastest way to send fi- pictures was to actually like burn it to a CD-ROM and like mail it, right? It's similar with, with energy, right? The fastest way to move energy right now is moving oil through a pipe because um, the oil has so much energy in it. And when you want to refuel your car, when you run out of gas, you just fill up the tank. It takes two minutes and it's a tremendous amount of energy. Um, the other big thing about fuel is like it, it sits, right? Like it, it stores energy. Whereas with electricity, not only is um, the way you store electricity, like batteries, relatively not dense, like it takes a lot of batteries to store a certain amount of energy, but also um, it's it's not easy to store. It's expensive to store. Batteries are, are relatively expensive compared to like a canister into which you put fuel. And the other weird thing about electricity that's very different than fuel is for the most part, because you can't store it that easily or historically you haven't been able to store it that easily, 
you've had to use energy the same time you're making it. So if you're turning a light on in your house, uh, and this is super basic, I mean, there's a million books you can, that, that you can go into, but when you turn a light on in your house, that light is being powered in real time by you know, the electrical energy being generated on the other side of the grid at some power plant. And yes, you know, in California, especially with these uh, sort of mass grid storage projects, you're starting to be able to actually store energy and keep it so that you can generate it in the peak hours when it's most sunny and kind of store it and use it later. But for the most part, if you look at the, the energy systems, the gas energy system and the electric energy system, most of the energy in gas is sitting at rest. It's either in your gas tank waiting to be used or it's in a gas station waiting to be used. Um, very little of the energy in the gas system, so to speak, is actually moving, is, is, is being transported or is being used in a, in a particular moment. In the electrical system, it's like the opposite. Almost every you know, portion of energy that is in the electrical system today is in transit or it is being used. Very, very little of it is sitting in the form of potential, you know, chemical energy in a battery. And that's just because it's very hard to store electricity. Um, so this creates a problem where if you want to have renewables, which the sun shines at certain hours, the wind blows at certain hours, you have a time shifting. So you actually have to collect energy and store it in these batteries and then dispense it when you actually need it. So that that's one issue that the grid has and has to look very different. And the second big issue is you've got the, the transmission. Like I, I mentioned that it's very easy to move energy in liquid fuel because it's, it's fast to pour gas from one canister to another. To move energy in the electrical world, today you could imagine like every house has a straw and the amount of energy it gets is coming through that straw. Well, if you plug a car in and you want to charge it in 45 minutes or an hour, you need like a hundred straws to do that. And so it's not just the time shifting the grid is going to have to do to manage when power is needed versus when it's available to be made, but it's also the distribution of that power. And it's the last mile connectivity to every house, to every parking lot, giving that particular spot a tremendous amount of power potential should it need it when it chooses to choose it, uh, to chooses to charge its vehicles. And so, so that's a big change in how the grid works. You've, you've got these power hotspots where people are plugging in a car and drawing way more power than their house has ever drawn in, you know, I live in San Francisco and like a Victorians, the house is, you know, whatever, a hundred something years old, 150 years old. If we plugged in an EV, it, that, that probably is using 50 X more power than, uh, you know, then this home is ever drawn in its, in its whole history. And the house was built before electricity, you know, was popularized. So you've got these hot spots and you also have this time shifting issue. And that is just, that's going to require the grid look very different than it looks today. And what is uniquely um, American about the way we are doing things here? The rational way that you would solve this is by improving the grid. And I mean, Yes, people can have distributed resources like Tesla power walls in their home and, and rooftop solar, and a lot of these distributed resources would contribute. But for the most part, the most effective way would be the expansion of the capacity on the utility side of things. That means the grid would build and own and manage lots of storage, um, and it would have to build a lot of last mile connectivity so that the grid can actually get power to every home, every business every warehouse and parking lot that's going to have charging installed. It's a very substantial expansion that the grid has to make. 
It's like a truck stop today, for example, takes very little electricity, keeps the you know air conditioning on and maybe the lights. In 10 years, it's going to be drawing as much energy as a stadium on game day. So I'm not saying it's easy, but it would make sense for the grid to do this because huge efficiencies of scale, economies of scale, the grid gets better as it obtains more assets, as it grows its size. There are arbitrages when different users need energy at different times. The, the grid gets better as it gets larger. And so it would just make sense to solve the time shifting issues and the distribution issues by building a better grid. But the problem that we face is that it's, it's really hard to expand the grid. And because it's so hard to expand the grid in the United States, what's going to end up happening is that the expansion and capacity that our electrical system has is going to come a lot more from distributed small-scale energy resources, or what's called DERs, distributed energy resources. That's, you know, if you're a home, that's a Tesla Powerwall and uh, a solar panel on your roof, right? If you're a commercial user, it's the fact that your warehouse or parking lot has backup generators, um, battery storage, rooftop solar, etc., And what percentage is going to come from expanding the grid versus expanding these kind of distributed assets? I don't know. It's not clear. But I can say that it's going to be a lot more distributed in the United States than it would be in other societies, other systems. And let's look at why it's so hard for the grid to take on this expanded responsibility. And the first reason is it's obvious. It's just hard to build new things and rip and replace energy infrastructure in a city. I mean, that's obvious. And it's, you know, for much of the same reasons, it's difficult to build houses, you know, in in cities in the United States. But there's another big issue. And that issue is that the utilities don't necessarily have the incentive structure set up to push them to take advantage of this opportunity to step into this new responsibility, even though it means that they're going to be growing their businesses substantially. And I say the utilities, it's not the people within the utilities, actually. It's the systems that they exist in. There are actually a lot of very insightful, forward-looking people trying to move their organizations in the right direction. And people have been talking about how utilities can use grid-scale storage, et cetera, to handle electric vehicles for a long time. But the incentive structures are broken. And if you can't believe this, which is understandable, I mean, it seems like it would be great for the grid to do all these new things. If you can't believe this, look at the most recent example over the last 30 years where we've made clearly worse designs in our national electric infrastructure versus a country like China because of the way our incentives work. And that is in long-distance energy transmission, long-distance electricity transmission. So where, you know, I said grids get better with scale. And this is a bit of a tangent, but it'll explain the American way of doing things. You know, grids get better with scale, I said earlier. um, And that's true even across massive geographies or especially across massive geographies where you're going to have parts of your country that are energy rich, like the Texas panhandle, which has tons of sun and tons of wind. And you want to move that energy to where it's actually needed, like New York City, where you can't actually generate all the energy you need, right? So the Chinese are doing this by building, um, using a technology called high voltage direct current lines. They're, They're zapping power across the country. So in the U.S., like at the top level, the federal uh, groups have talked about this, you know, academics are, are everyone kind of knows this makes sense. People in the grids know this makes sense. But when it actually came time to do it, first of all, it's on private players to do it. So it was actually a startup that came up and there are others, but there, there were private groups that came up and said, hey, we want to do this. It makes sense. Everyone can see why it makes sense, et cetera. And then when they tried to build the lines, you run into the fact that there's not one national grid. I mean, there's hundreds of local monopoly utilities 
that all comply to their particular state's rules that have whatever they care about. And if you're just passing a line through their jurisdiction to get power from Texas to New York, there's not necessarily a business model that they have in place to take advantage of that. So why should they let you? It makes sense that, you know, we would have this system of multiple energy grids in the United States today, right, from the historical perspective and sort of linkage to utilities. But what are some of the pros and cons of having, you know, this sort of decentralized system of electric grids? And and you just outlined one of the negatives is that, you know, we can't easily figure out how to uh, move something from one place to another. But um, but what are some of the other pros and cons of this decentralized system? Pros and cons. I know this can kind of seem just like a rant about the problems we have here, but there there are a lot of pros to this very decentralized system where, you know, the feds and, and even states to an extent just kind of set visions and, and people fill in these visions. You know, some of the pros are in some ways resiliency, right? A future where you've got a lot of distributed energy resources and microgrids, people can kind of control their destiny, so to speak. You also just have like literally more resilience because um, you've got islands of power that can not suffer from, from large scale brownouts or blackouts. And that's why you see in a lot of developing countries, you know, DERs all over the place. But there's another bigger kind of pro here, and this is kind of harder to pin. Um, so I'll seed this idea, and I'm, I'm definitely not the person that can pontificate here the best, but that's in like decentralized ownership of the system, right? So you look at a country in, like China where there's there's a national grid and it's owned by the government, and I'm... I'm just painting in broad strokes here, but it's directionally correct, and I'm trying to make a point about ownership. So you've, you've got a system, and, and everyone is an employee of the system, right? It's, it's really owned by the state. And it's very different from how we do things in the United States, where our, direct, our directives, the way that we want things to work, are that the, the feds set aside pools of money, and they set standards, and they set vision, and they say, hey, go do this. Go build these things per these standards, um, per this vision, and use the money that we're going to set aside for you to do that, right? And and that allows, that's an entry point for, for many entrepreneurs and many organizations to, to have uh, a way to build and own part of these national projects. And, you know, we're seen as a very unequal society, and obviously in many ways we are, but there is a very interesting and important way in which the decentralized nature of, of these projects allows more people to take part in an ownership of these large-scale national projects. And and that's the opportunity. I mean, that's the opportunity for companies to come forward and say, hey, I have a product that works as part of this large vision, and, you know, please help me. Get me the permits needed to put this out there. Get me the funding needed to put this out there, you know, to create this public good. And I do think that even if it's it's a more roundabout way of getting to a system, even if it's not hypothetically as efficient as a centrally planned system can be, you know, when it is complete, it is still a very good system. And and there are a lot of reasons that the U.S. system has proven to be very durable over time. Well, you are building um, your company currently in the U.S. system, so we do not doubt your commitment and excitement about the opportunity here. Um, Well, thanks for that overview. Um, Transport electrification support was an important part of um, the 2022 bipartisan infrastructure bill. What's your take on the effectiveness of this policy initiative and um, the U.S. regulators in general? The first thing to note is that 
the support from the federal government for electrification is massive. I mean, there's a million ways to critique the approaches, but it's also on the order of a trillion dollars. So it's, you know, one to 1,000, right? The challenge here is that these large programs are very challenging to implement. I mean, regulatory design or regulatory governance, when you're thinking about how do you implement things in a manner that encourages the desired behaviors, gets people aligned, and, and minimizes abuse and regulatory capture, that's not an easy thing. And the fact of the matter is that we're balancing multiple conflicting goals, right? I mean, we want to support a more robust industrial economy in the U.S. and important allies. So it makes sense to shape the rules around incentives to push industry onshore or nearshore um, as much as reasonably possible. But we also want to make EVs affordable. And we also want to scale production quickly. So you have to balance those conflicting goals. Another area where it's just difficult to balance is we want to, especially this administration, we want to ensure that this generational investment in infrastructure is going to be a boost to a wide swath of the American people. I mean, the interstate highway system was just built through urban areas at the particular expense of black neighborhoods, right? And they these communities were kicked out, but it, it you know wiped out home ownership, small business ownership. Urban highways kicked out, kicked down the pillars on which these communities' wealth and stability was built. And that's what can happen when you have such a massive project being built. So along with the infrastructure incentives today are all sorts of specific programs to not only avoid disenfranchising people, but to actually try using these programs to reverse past wrongs. So like the best example of this is a program called Justice 40, which demands that 40% of federal investments flow to disadvantaged communities. And that translates to requirements for charging infrastructure that should be built in low-income neighborhoods, even if there are no EV drivers there, at least for now, right? So there are a thousand reasons that this is potentially very important, but we also have to recognize that it's yet another requirement that this infrastructure has to satisfy on its path towards being a working system. And, you know, Fox News and the right love to pick on things like Justice 40 and use it to paint the administration as being out of touch with how things work. But honestly, the biggest and most important challenges that face regulators are not the politically juicy things. It's not the culture war issues, right? It's the nitty gritty technical standards and technical issues that are hard to make work. I'll give you an example, and this is the real stuff, right? One landmark program enabled by the infrastructure bill um, was designed to build highway charging, and they want to make sure that highway charging that is funded by the government is of some minimum quality, right? Well, to avoid having federal dollars siphoned away by developers that are just throwing shit against a wall trying to make a quick buck, what should minimum quality be? Those standards have been pretty specific, including minimum power rates and demands around the charging plug standard. So like you probably know that almost every EV uses one open source standard and then Tesla uses a different one, right? Well, the government naturally wanted to back the open source standard rather than explicitly prop up Tesla's kind of walled garden. But sometimes that, that principle can backfire because as much as we talk about the billions that are flowing into getting other charging networks like Electrify America and ChargePoint to catch up with Tesla, Tesla is just far better. I mean, even this year, Tesla has built more fast chargers than everyone else combined. So at what point do you kind of throw your hands up? I, I mean, we're dealing with a situation where now the big American OEMs like Ford and GM have said, hey, we're going we're gonna to use Tesla standard, right? And this switch happened over the course of a few days. So what is the federal government requirements? Well, you know, what happens to them now? And the result of all of this is that after this landmark program was launched, 
round one, so to speak, of applications opened up. And frankly, very few, relatively speaking, very few applications for infrastructure to get funded were put in. And many industry observers are saying this means the government is going to have to go back to the drawing board and consider a new revised set of standards that actually make a little bit more sense, right? This sounds bad, right? But no, it's not. It's not bad. It's just how this stuff works. The government is administering a huge amount of money, and it wants to be a good steward of the capital. And the key thing here is that the people at the top of these organizations are actually very commercially savvy. They're not out-of-touch bureaucrats. Um, the person that leads the Department of Energy's loan office, Jigger Shaw, the guy started a renewable infrastructure private equity firm in his previous life. Like He gets what makes this stuff work. And between Granholm and Buttigieg is this new division called the Joint Office of the Department of Energy and the Department of Transport. And that's run by you know, Gabe Klein. And, and he used to be like a private company executive at a big automotive fleet before going into government. And Shailen Bott, who's the highway administrator under Buttigieg has, has been a government lifer, but he's extremely collaborative with industry and he's constantly meeting with companies, speaking at conferences. I mean, these are people that are working with industry to make this stuff happen. So I have a favorable, favorable view of what the administration has done to get these programs rolling. And obviously there are hiccups and everyone's kind of throwing their hands up and, and saying, oh, it's not working, but it's an iterative process. And I think that the people at the top are moving it in the right direction. But, you know, it's not only the people at the top that matter. And Ultimately, these organizations need creative and ambitious people from all walks of life to consider going into government. That's a whole other topic, but we, we need to reverse the brain drain from government. And I think that some of these officials are actually helping make that happen by showing what government agencies agencies can get done and really kind of in opening up the, the playing field for a wide variety of talented people to get involved. Um, well, I can imagine this being a great follow-up to, to this interview on, you know, how do we encourage more high-quality people to go into government and be interested in being on the policy side. Um, but maybe let's let's shift to um, to the other side of this topic. And, um, you know, certainly the way you presented the current state of um, the regulatory um, institutions here gives us a lot of optimism. It's great to have commercially minded people, but also, as, as you put it, some healthy tension um, between private and public sector is probably what's going to lead to the best outcomes. So, you know, obviously, transport electrification is very important for the country. Um, but what opportunities specifically does it present to capital allocators? Um, how do they look from the perspective of risk return? What are some of the issues to be aware of for those looking to allocate capital <clears throat> sector and to um, to this project today? Um, you know, earlier I said that the American way of doing things is one where private industry is going to have a very important role to play. The transport infrastructure of our society is going to be funded by the government, but a lot of it's going to be built and co-funded by private industry. That's a big opportunity, and I think every allocator needs to consider what the energy transition in the U.S. means for a lot of their portfolio. One easy lens through which to look at this is real estate. You know, for decades, between residential and commercial and industrial, access to electricity was never like a critical thing for real estate. I mean, maybe in CNI, but for the most part, CNI real estate selection was much more about, you know, what site had access to, you know, rail yards or what site had access to highways, etc. Um, increasingly, access to electricity is going to be an important aspect around the underwriting decision for 
real estate site selection. You're starting to see leading investors create strategies around not just green energy or clean energy infrastructure, but specifically around how electrical potential is becoming a mission critical part of any commercial and industrial development. And this is not so simple. Along with every you know real estate play historically, there's been public information you can kind of draw conclusions from, but there's also private data sets you want to build. Um, a lot of times utilities don't even necessarily have a clear answer as to where they have access to power, where they can give you power. So there's a, there's a big role for um, proprietary information and investigation to yield interesting arbitrage opportunities. And that means you need origination platforms that can, can do this, can actually generate and leverage this type of unique insight. Strategies like this already being implemented. Ruben Munger's firm, uh, Vision Ridge Partners, for example, backed uh, what's effectively an energy project developer with something like a billion dollars to go and identify plots of land that would be both advantageous from a transportation perspective, but also are located such that they can get access to the power required to power that charging. An important portfolio company that me and my partner at Red Blue Capital, Olaf Sackers, backed back when we were running Maniv Mobility is a company called Revel Transit, which is a New York City-based ride-hail fleet operator, but also an energy project developer. And when we invested at the seed round, it was clear that charging was going to be important in their operations of the fleet, but it wasn't so clear just then how difficult building charging could be. And eventually the company evolved uh, into what is today really one of the premier fast charging infrastructure developers uh, in New York City and soon enough around the United States. And because it had the ability to quickly and effectively deploy this infrastructure, it's been backed by the, the likes of BlackRock, um, which as an, you know, an allocator obviously has an interest in building an origination pipeline for energy infrastructure, um, especially that which can benefit from federal support. And I think you're going to see a lot of different large institutional funds identifying developers that can take advantage of these real estate arbitrages over time. I mean, e even at Port Power, the company I most recently co-founded and am full-time focused on, you know, we're not a fintech company, but we've had multiple private equity groups approach us about helping them create a scalable origination platform to identify, invest in, and develop the charging infrastructure that needs to be built over the next 20 years. That is the big opportunity for a lot of these firms. That's a big growth opportunity. And real estate is just one strategy. I mean, playing in the electrical markets as a commodity market is one additional opportunity for people to make a lot of money. I mean, the price swings here are crazy compared to any other commodity. And it used to be that you had to really be in the generation side of the business to really do this. But with the rise of distributed energy resources and the rise of storage, you can enter the, the electricity commodity markets without necessarily having to own a power plant, right? And it's not just about making money. I mean, it's not taking advantage of price swings just to print cash, although I think you can do that. It's about taking advantage of price swings by supporting the grid through grid services and helping to manage the time shifting and the balancing needed to make the electrical grid work better. It's a great example where there are big opportunities to make quite a bit of money, but also do something that's important to support the nation's future infrastructure. There, there are many strategies that allocators need to be aware of and be on top of 
I guess my message here is I'm not an expert on many of them, but what I can say is that allocators need to be developing and deploying new strategies around the energy transition and specifically around the electric vehicle charging infrastructure world. Yep. And so if let's say you are um, an allocator at an endowment or a sovereign wealth fund or a family office, and um, you're looking at this space and you're seeing you know, there's so much potential, um, you've outlined there are some private equity strategies around the real estate component of, um, of the electrification. But, um, you know, I'd imagine given, for example, what your company is building, there are also opportunities in software and, and related um, sectors. So tell us more about like, what are some of the other asset classes? Is it the cross asset class opportunity? And then also as an allocator talking to different types of GPs, who are saying that, you know, they are investing in the um, energy transition, what are some of the, you know, what are some of the things that as an allocator, you should pay attention to in terms of who are the best GPs to, um, you know, to invest in the best opportunities in the sector? Let's split the world into two buckets. Um, bucket one is the real infrastructure side of the world. It's companies that are buying real estate, deploying assets, uh, green energy asset finance, etc. The second bucket is more traditional technology company, more traditional sort of venture backable companies. That's the software and data companies. It's also the technology companies working on deep tech like batteries. And if you start, let's start with the second bucket. So more traditional technology, whether it's software or it's deep technology, I think the GPs that are gonna be successful investing in these kinds of companies are going to bring a lot of sector expertise. And that's because the, you know, the early markers of product market fit look different here than they do in consumer internet or enterprise software. The proof points and validation points come from a different cast of characters and are communicated differently here than they are in enterprise software or consumer internet. And that's why, I mean, a few years ago, that's why my partner Olaf Sackers and I, when we were running Maneve Mobility and decided to start Red Blue Capital, that's why we believed that sector expertise was so important. And today at Port Power, uh, my new startup, this is my world. It's a technology company. And as a founder, I know me and my co-founders would want to work with venture investors that understand and have deep expertise in our particular industry. So I do think sector expertise will matter quite a bit. Now, let's take a step back, though, and look at the first bucket, though. Um, so not technology, more like infrastructure, asset-heavy companies. Um, I, I still think sector expertise here is something you're going to want to look for when you're choosing a GP. I would say one of the challenges when I've seen some of the real estate strategies be rolled out, and there are many being rolled out now, but some of the challenges are that a private equity firm says, hey, we need an origination pipeline for you know real estate acquisitions we can make that are aligned with our energy energy transition strategy, right? And they just pick a real estate person, they, you know, they put him in here, and they're like, okay, now pay attention to energy and go do stuff like that. You're looking for a completely different set of signals as to what site makes sense, right? So actually having, um, actually working with firms that are willing to put in the work to not necessarily just transfer financial people into this new energy transition strategy, but to actually actually identify, pull in technical experts from outside of the real estate investing world or outside of the private equity world and actually invest in the human capital needed to build um a pipeline of investors that are bringing that technical expertise to bear on their infrastructure or green energy asset or real estate investing strategies. I mean, that's going to be necessary. I think that there's a lot of people that have entered the space that are just 
basically traditional PE or, or, you know, asset finance people that just kind of put on a new hat, like the green hat, right? And that's fine. I mean, you, learning goes both ways, but I think that it's probably more difficult and more time consuming to learn and master all the intricacies of this particular industry than it is to go in the other direction and figure out how to figure out investing for the first time, right? So I do think that when an allocator is choosing a GP, especially for the more asset heavy world, they need to be very aware of um, whether this person or whether this team is bringing unique uh, access to insights and understanding on a more technical level of what exactly they're investing in. Mm -hmm. And um, let's finish this conversation, um, maybe talking a little bit about some of the unique parts of your background. Um, you, you know, you spent some time as an operator at the beginning of your career, then you started a venture capital firm, and now you're back to building companies. So what are some of your reflections on the differences between being a GP and an operator and uh, how maybe one perspective changed the way you do the other? Oh, where to start? Uh, there are so many differences between, um, between investing in companies and, and starting companies. Um, something that's come up recently a few times with uh, at Port Power, my startup, my co-founder and CEO, Nadav Gore, has started and, and sold multiple companies in the past. He, he's been from zero to one and one to 10. And and he said to me, Prescott, like sometimes, you know, we're in the earliest stages of, of this company's development, right? Sometimes the answer to a problem is not, who do I know? You know, who can I bring in to help? Sometimes the answer is just, you have to solve the problem. And obviously as a company gets bigger, executives in those companies, they shift from solving problems to building teams and keeping the teams glued together, going in the same direction. And, and they're really kind of, you know, managing people. Um, but when you're coming from a VC hat, you know, you're, you're kind of always in that similar, maybe later stage company investor mindset. Every answer is, who do I know? Portfolio company has a problem. Who do I know? Right. Very rarely do you actually get in the weeds and actually solve things. For the most part, you're investing in founders that you want to be solving those things without your help, right? Um, and that's a big transition, I think, to go from from investing back to startup. If you are in day zero, the answer to most questions is I do it myself, right? And then of course, as things get going and the team grows, your role changes. But that that's it's one of the biggest uh, one of the biggest mindset shifts I've had to to go through. Um, and uh, you've lived in different countries, started multiple ventures, most of which have been in challenging sectors at the intersection of technology risk, regulatory constraints, and the capital structure complexity. What gives you energy and inspires you to take risks and uh, to build in such a complicated sector? There's a quote from one of the founding figures of Israel, uh, Shimon Peres, and it goes something like, Count your dreams and count your accomplishments. And if your dreams outnumber your accomplishments, you are still young. This really reminds me of a lot of how I felt about Israel when I happened to live there for the first six, almost seven years of my career. Um, I just went there purely out of an opportunity career-wise. I'm, I'm not Jewish, but um, and it feels like such a youthful and optimistic and, and a society with a lot of dynamism. And, you know, today it's going through what's kind of a political disaster, right? So you talked with Israelis, you're not going to hear optimism. <laughs> but um, but while they're not going to say that they're hopeful, they are, in general, the most hopeful people I've come to know. And, and when I say hopeful, like, I'm measuring that by how generative the society is. It's like Israelis start up 
companies more than anyone else globally. Israelis, you know, produce movies and television left and right, like way more than you're seeing from any other country of 8 million people. Um, they're, you know, at the forefront of building clean power across Africa and the Middle East. They're moving their families and companies to the U.S. because they can raise money in Silicon Valley and set up in New York and have the best chance of an exit. Israelis travel the most. and <laughs> There are so many Israeli 21-year-olds that go after the army to hike on like a dollar a day budget in Patagonia that there are literally signs in Hebrew asking people not to litter. Like the signs are in Spanish, Chinese, English, and Hebrew. Like what language of those four has fewer than 500 million or even a billion speakers, right? Like it's something doesn't add up. Um, and Israelis need to work on cleanliness, right? <laughs> um, but it's it's like a, it's a funny society. There's so many contradictions and, and it's because it's changed so much. It started or restarted, so to speak, only 70 years ago as essentially the world's like largest refugee camp with a bunch of Holocaust survivors and Jews that got kicked out of the Arab countries. And it was like crushingly poor and it coped through socialism and it had like agricultural communes with Marx style collective parenting. And then two generations later, Israel's like a first world country that was like one of the first countries to put a satellite into orbit with an insane number of companies listed on NASDAQ. Like, what's my point here? I mean, it's not like other countries haven't changed. There's been incredible amount of change in, in so many countries all over the world. You know, Korea, Japan, after World War II, it's also a similar story, right? But for some reason, I get the sense that Israelis are just so much more aware for the potential for change, in the good and the bad direction, by the way, compared to other societies. And they use that knowledge to inform how they act in the world. And they are youthful people that push for things to change. They understand that institutions that they're stepping into, like this generation knows that those institutions were built by their parents or by their grandparents. That's not that far away. Like you can envision yourself in their shoes, building those institutions. And in contrast, there are societies that just feel old, where like everything just kind of has existed. There's less of a sense that change is possible. Maybe it's not even worth trying to change things. It's not even worth like pushing back and questioning why things are the way they are. You know, we talked earlier about this doom and gloom sense here in the US in the podcast that like infrastructure projects don't get built, right? Okay, well then, like why the hell is our response to that not to get involved to try to solve it? It's okay to lose faith in our institutions, but it's not okay to be cynical and like hide behind memes pretending that, that that's gonna solve anything. I feel like in the US, our gener my generation needs kind of like a revival of sorts. And maybe I mean that in a religious way, right? A bit ago, you talked about the need for industrious young people to go get involved in government. I couldn't agree more. Just seeing the problems does not solve them. Just posting about the problems, you have to go actually, you have to solve the problems. And to do that, you have to actually believe that the society is capable of change. Anyway, but my point here is to emphasize that, look, Israel's a challenging place. There's a lot of things going in the wrong direction today. But when I spent seven years or almost seven years there, early in my career, like opened my eyes to what a youthful society looks like. It's not the age of the people. It's the mindset that the people in the society have. And I find that very inspiring. And I love going back to Israel and meeting with my friends and my old colleagues. I, I get a lot of energy from the place. Well, that's that's very inspiring. And um, thank you for, for that quote. Um, I I like it a lot. And, and certainly you know, for me, California has always been a reflection of that. Um, interestingly enough, 
the summer that I left London, there was an exhibit um, at one of the museums called California Manufacturing the Dream. And there were two parts of it. One was Hollywood and the second part was Silicon Valley and technology. And so, you know, in many cases, California is responsible for generating an unlimited number of dreams um, and sort of bringing that, you know, perspective of usefulness or institutional usefulness um, to, to the United States. But, um, but that's a very interesting perspective as well that, you know, being connected to some of the other regions in the world where that's happening consistently gives you energy and helps you build here. Uh, well, thank you for this conversation, Prescott. It's been um, it's been really great getting your perspective in this complicated sector. Um, and uh, as always, enjoy our discussions. Absolutely. Thank you, Olga. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.